0: This week's episode of Ask Science Mike not only contains science, faith, and life, but adult themes and mature content.
1: Coming to you from Cascade Church in Portland, Oregon, it's Ask Science Mike Live! <clears throat> he's got questions, he's got answers, even though he may not understand, or talk anyway. He's got problems, he won't solve them. But I'm talking, talking, talking till it's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. And this week, it's a live edition. The questions are unscreened, the answers unrehearsed, and I have no idea what will happen. Tickets for the Liturgist Gathering in Denver and Chicago just went on sale. We'll tell you more about that at the end of the program. But for now, we've got a podcast to do. So let's get it started.
2: My name is Caitlin. I'm from Seattle. Hi.
1: Hi. It's good to see you.
2: Um, My question pertains to the placebo effect. It is my great insecurity that I might be duped by the false or foolish, whether it's in science, faith, or life. And the idea that something counterfeit can become authentic or real merely through a thought or belief is incredibly unnerving for somebody who's interested in the empirical So, can you explain the physiology of this effect and provide your thought on how to then trust or test the validity or credibility of our own thinking? Perhaps only certain areas of our brain are susceptible to this response. Thank you for everything that you do.
1: Wow. (laughs) That is a phenomenal question. A beginner's guide to skepticism and the placebo effect. So... Uh, Well, let's start with an assumption, right? So because of what I do, I have this weird thing where the people who listen to me are a strange coalition. So some of the people who listen to Ask Science Mike would consider themselves conservative evangelical Christians or Catholics. They're a fairly small slice, but they're out there. And then you have people who would consider themselves mainline Protestants or super weirdo progressive evangelicals. And then there's a huge portion of my audience who's spiritual or not, but not religious. And then finally, believe it or not, in this coalition, there's a significant number of self-identified agnostics and atheists. As far as I can tell, it's fairly unique in the media landscape for all of these people to hang out. And so before I answer your question, I want to talk about what, what hat we're going to put on. And for this hat, I'm mainly going to stick over here in skeptical materialist land, because it's the most useful reference frame to get to the question. So, from the aspect of materialism, or a science view, all of our thoughts, all of our feelings, happen in the 86 billion neurons of the human brain. Now, here's a funny thing about our brains. They are remarkably suggestible. Remarkably. There were some uh, earlier scientific studies that talked about the power of hypnosis in pain relief, and uh, later studies figured out it wasn't hypnosis, it was literally just suggestibility, that if a person, while you're about to have a medical procedure, sits close to you, is calm, gives you soothing contact, and tells you you hurt less, guess what happens? You hurt less. Why? Because there's an interplay between your thoughts and your pain and your emotions. Why? Because they're all electrical chemical reactions. So of course, our beliefs affect our physiology because our beliefs are part of our physiology. So the placebo effect is a documented phenomenon where um, you're, you're all familiar, but for some of the listeners who may not be, you can give someone a sugar pill and tell them that it cures the common cold or rides pain relief or whatever, and for some percentage of the people, it will work. It's really remarkable. And what you're looking for in science to know if a medicine is effective or not is that it outperforms the placebo effect in trials. So here's the kicker for how skeptics weigh claims. They look at the evidence. Uh, Something I've picked on a few times in the program is essential oils. So scientifically, what do essential oils do? They smell good, and they moisturize your skin, and they provide a slight antimicrobial effect, like all oils. Uh, But a lot of people make these very big claims, like they cure the common cold, or they solve headaches. And we understand that to be the placebo effect at work. Which is why in science we say that the plural of anecdote is not data. Just because several people tell a story, that's not a reason to accept it as fact. So that's the placebo effect. When we get to skepticism, the way to avoid being duped is to say, show me your data. Guess what? Sometimes there's data and it's not good data. Which means you have to check the methodology. And there's a huge problem in science right now, actually, where scientists trained scientists aren't very good at statistics. So even though they gathered good data, they don't understand how to reach an appropriate level of statistical confidence to make a claim, and the other people in their field don't know how to review it. So skepticism is always healthy, which is why you want to look at a large body of work that's been reviewed by many people and I hate to say it, for those who aren't trained experts, we have to trust the testimony of people who are. But true to skepticism, anything I accept from a study that I don't understand or I can't measure myself, I don't believe with as much confidence as ideas I can fully understand on my own, and that's kind of how science works. Now, this is particularly interesting for people of faith, because faith claims tend to not have scientifically backed empirical data, which is why I always talk about the different roles of science and faith in our lives. Science is great for learning facts. It's not so great for discerning meaning or beauty or aesthetic judgments or morality. And for that, for people of faith, we, we adopt that from a more philosophical approach. Oh, so, really good question. Thank you.
3: Hi, my name is Ryan Blanchard. I'm here from
1: Southeast Portland.
3: In Sam Harris's book, Free Will... Fuck <laughs> your seatbelts, guys. This is going to be good. Yeah. <laughs> so Sam, I call him Sam, um, admits that even though determinism seems true, it's not very useful in terms <laughs> of our day-to-day lives. But one area where he felt like it might be useful is in regards to crime and punishment. Yeah. If, if we could acknowledge the things people do are not their own choice, we could maybe shift from our, our current system where we, we really relish the idea of somebody being miserable in a box and shift to something more logical, which is just acknowledging we have to separate this person, but that's really all we have to do. That's, that's all that logic dictates we do. So could you talk about the science behind why we like the idea of bad people suffering, why we want to take revenge Ooh, you left on turn people? On me because um, we, we really seem to like this idea, even though if we really thought about it, all we really need is for bad people to be away from us. We don't need them to also be in pain.
1: Yeah, okay. Whew. Guys brought your A game. Sam Harris, we can clap for questions. I'm in. I'm in. Uh, let's see. So Sam Harris is a neuroscientist slash philosopher, slash one of the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse. Uh, I love his work. He did significantly contribute to me leaving Christianity for a while because he makes really good arguments about things like free will. And as a neuroscientist and a determinist, a determinist is someone who believes that the universe is so reliable mathematically that everything will unfold in kind of a set way. It's funny to me actually how physicists and like Calvinists are both really into predestination. (laughs) Uh, But so he, in his book Free Will, argues that looking at the brain, uh, our thoughts, our feelings are just kind of inevitable consequences of a biological computer doing its thing. Uh, And as so many people who wrestle with that issue go, well, that's great. I still feel like I have free will. In fact, I tried this. A couple of nights ago in Minneapolis to see if I had free will, I walked off the stage and left in the middle of the talk after someone asked me about free will and didn't come back for like three minutes. And uh, illusionary or not, it made everybody in the room really uncomfortable. So Sam arrives at a point where in his personal actions, he assumes he has free will, that he should be responsible for his choices and his decisions, but from a more macro level, It's not fair to do that. I tend to agree in terms of the way we approach crime and punishment. Let's suspend the idea of free will for a second because no one has totally free, unconstrained will. It doesn't exist. Uh, I'll give you a couple examples. One, you can't choose to know something you don't know. You can't do it. Like right now, someone just know a unified theory of physics And tell me. Okay. You can't, like, decide gravity's not a thing for you. (laughs) If you had truly unconstrained will. Now, those are silly examples, but let's amplify them. If you grow up in a certain socioeconomic context, uh, and I don't mean advantageous or disadvantageous, that's going to shape the way your will gets expressed. Funny enough, humans don't like to think about moral transgressions that way. We have a strong thirst for vengeance. Uh, In fact, in the Old Testament, there's a passage that says an eye for an eye, the crime must fit the punishment, which we look at as brutal today, (laughs) but was actually meant to limit violence because it used to be, uh, if you gouge my son's eye out, I'll go kill everyone in your village. So that was meant to limit this this desire for retribution. Where does that come from? You have to remember, uh, humans didn't come from apes. Humans are apes. Like, taxonomically, in the animal kingdom, that's where we fit. And if you measure human beings against other apes, what do you find? We are by far the most violent species of ape on the planet. Uh, If you look at small groups of humans in tribal situations and compare them to chimpanzee troops of similar size, chimpanzees need a two-to-one or three-to-one numerical advantage to wage war on a neighboring troop. Human tribes will go with a 5% differential. And we have the tremendous violence attached to crippling social anxiety, Because of the great apes, we are about the least likely to survive on our own. So we want our troop, our tribe, to be safe. That's an evolutionary-driven behavior. So if someone is from a different tribe and threatens us, we want to wipe them out. And if someone is in our tribe, is taking more than their share or harming members of the tribe, we want to hit them on the wrist hard or maybe just cut their hands off. Now, it turns out, in the modern age, where we use Excel spreadsheets to measure things instead of our amygdala, uh, retribution is a terribly ineffective methodology. What does it result in? Prison overcrowding? Uh, what does it result in? High residuation rates? People go right back into prison when they get out. And smarter data-based societies have made a decision to go to something called rehabilitative or restorative justice, where the goal is not to simply punish someone, but to try to help them not be a troubling member of society. And if you look at countries that do that, the data makes a good argument that it's not only a good idea, it's actually less expensive, both in incarceration costs and overall costs to societies. Now that, I imagine some of my listeners in Texas right now are throwing their iPhones. (laughs) And I wanna be clear, this is a data-driven idea. This is not, like, a political ideology I'm espousing. Um, But this, I try not to judge too harshly people who thirst for vengeance-based justice because a few hundred million years of evolution have shaped human brains that way. Great question. Thank you.
4: Linda, and I'm from the Seattle area. And, um, my question is about your journey, um, about, um, how you v- view LGBT equality and, um, gay marriage and just how, and what the Bible says. Um, mm-hmm. my husband and I have had our own journey of burying a gay child um, mm-hmm. that we, um, handled with, um, the very traditional evangelical prescription. Didn't work so well. And, um... My experience in working with a lot of other parents is that when conservative Christian parents have a gay child, oftentimes it begins their journey of deconstruction yes after they figure out this doesn't this doesn't work, and they don't want to end up burying their child and I guess I'm curious about your journey mm. since obviously you your your daughters aren't old enough to be at that stage yet and you went from conservative to atheist and then where you're at now (laughs) and um, I'm just curious what has been your experience with it and did you have to confront this question and what was that like for you?
1: Greg, thank you. (laughs) Thank you for being honest and vulnerable. And thank you for, despite what has been a cultural norm for you your entire life, caring about how it impacts your child is beautiful. Thank you. Um, okay, so let's wind the clock back a few years. It was not too long ago that I was a conservative evangelical Southern Baptist of the biblical uh, Aaronist position, And because of that, I understood with absolute conviction that it was a sin against God for people to be in a same-sex relationship, certainly a same-sex marriage. This was a small problem because I worked in the advertising business. And before I worked in the advertising business, I played in bands, and I had a lot of gay friends, and I had this tension I'm like, well, they're my friends, and I like them. I even love them, but what they're doing is sin that separates them from God, and I don't want them to spend eternity in hell. This is something that really, oh, man, it ran me through the ringer. and we'll just do a Cliff Notes version of the whole story. Why not? We're all, we're all friends. The year I turned 21, I got really drunk one time. I didn't drink again until my 30s. It was so bad. Uh, and I got horribly sick and woke up and started to drown in my own vomit uh, after a show I'd played. That was in my rock and roll days, not my science mic days, I was much thinner. And, uh, (laughs) you know, the drummer sees me like on the floor and he turns my head and I can breathe. But here's the problem, I am too drunk to consistently turn my head. Luckily, there was one person willing to spend the whole night making sure I didn't drown—a gay man who had a crush on me. And so, by his grace and civility, I survived the night. It was a little uh, sand in my shoe for a long time, and later, um, I became an atheist. And then there was like, this doesn't make any sense. I so, what? They're not hurting anyone. I'm actually hurting them by lobbying to make sure it's illegal for them to be in love with someone. I'm the oppressor, but I couldn't get past something. How can two dudes like each other? <laughs> I, and I'm being completely transparent. I don't mean to be flippant. If you're one of my listeners and you are in the LGBTQ plus continuum, I am telling a story to my straight friends so they can have their own journey. And I asked a good friend of mine, a dear friend who was gay, I said, tell me the truth. Like, really? Like, you don't like girls. Like, on no level do you like girls. And he said do you remember the first time in elementary school you realized you liked girls? And I did. I remembered the actual girl. I remember the moment the cooties evaporated and there was this incredible creation I couldn't stop looking at. And he said, for me, it was a friend of mine. And I was horrified. And... He went so far as to go into deep denial, went to seminary, got married, trying to bury these impulses, was unable to have intimacy in his marriage, and got divorced. And he said, for most of my life, I would have given anything to be straight. Uh, He said, so let me ask you this. When did you choose to be straight? Oh, I didn't. He said, could you choose to be gay? And I was like, gross. (laughs) And it was like a light went on. Now, here I am talking to a man as an atheist pretending to be a Christian who's curious. And so that led me on this study that led to all the stuff I talk about on episode 20 of the Liturgy's podcast, which, by the way, has been downloaded over one million times. And um, we read the Bible wrong. We read the Bible wrong, and it stems from an idea that I thought went back to the original church and was actually a reaction to liberal theology in the 19th century we call modern Christian fundamentalism. A book was written called The Fundamentals of Faith that for the first time made the assertion that the only way to read the Bible was through this particular lens of inerrancy. And the early church, if you read the writings of the church fathers, the idea had never come up. That when we turn the Bible into a constitution, when we turn the Bible into a basic instructions before leaving earth kind of deal where it's your instructions on your new fire insurance policy to escape hell, you make the book worse, not better. It's not valuing the text, it's demeaning it, because the Bible is a library of books assembled by the church, written by men, mostly men, unfortunately, that was normal at the time, about God. And when we read the Bible from that perspective, what do we find? Solidarity we find people wrestling with the issues of their time. We find people struggling to understand what it means to be holy, to be the messengers of God on earth. And in fact, we see a 4,000 year debate about the nature and character of God. And when I read the Bible that way, it's beautiful. And I have to ask, even for people who are literalists or inerrantists, why did God change his mind on shellfish? And not same sex marriage. Or how many churches in America today ordain women but won't condone a same sex marriage? What we are doing is using the beautiful name of God and the name of Jesus to bully people into elevated suicide rates. And I won't be a part of it anymore. <laughs> I believe that every time two people fall in love, that every time two people commit to loving and honoring one another, God is found in that union, and it's beautiful, and it's sacred, and it is holy. And I am on a mission as a straight Christian <laughs> to tell my brothers and sisters who have been abused by the church I was wrong then and they are wrong now. I don't think Jesus would condone a culture that creates gay teen suicide. Thank you.
0: I'm Tony. I'm from Springfield, Oregon. Um, And uh, I... The, this lady actually inspired me to be a little bit more, more vulnerable with my question. Um, I was a youth pastor at a very conservative church for five years. Um, and, uh, and last May, my wife and I stepped down. Um, and in that time, uh, we, uh, we kind of came to this realization that we can read whatever we want and listen to whatever we want and really explore uh, the depths of our faith and not have to worry about how's this gonna affect the people I serve on staff with. Um, and since that time, <clears throat> we've had a very hard time um, with the people that we used to pastor I mean, and do life with, yeah. um, who, who have kind of alienated us. Um, and my wife and I uh, serve on wildlife. We do young life in our area. Um, and one of the members from that church called the, the leader and said that they don't think that we're fit for leadership because some of the stuff that we believe the area director. And so now there's just this person that we walked really closely with. Um, mm. And there's just this really ugly thing happening right now. Um, and my question for you is, I'm reading Brian Zahn's book, Water to Wine. And, uh, and he talks about how when he came into his own theologically, it was a very painful experience for him. Um, and, uh, and when he had to really buy into the con- new convictions that he had. Um, and I know that you went through a similar process. I mean, you were a conservative evangelical Southern Baptist, and now you're a Christian mystic. Um, and I'm curious, what advice would you have for someone like me Who's in the process of figuring out where he's at? I love Jesus. I want to follow him. Um, but this is really, really hard. And, uh, and I just want to come out on the other side of this, okay?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: On the one hand, it's a gift. This thing you knew to be true fell down, but behind it was something more beautiful. Behind it was either a clear or a more vivid image of the maker, whatever you want to call it, and it's so exciting that you can't wait to tell the people you love the most. Oops. So I was an atheist, like a uh, hunt for Red October running silent. And then I had that moment on the beach where, like, it was just me and God, and I couldn't wait to tell the world that we are all so loved. And I emailed my best friend in the world, and I said, hey, got to tell you something, buddy. Uh, I've been an atheist for a while, and I know I'm a... Deacon in the church and a Sunday school teacher, and I play in the worship band. <laughs> but you don't have to worry about it because I found out that God is real. <laughs> and can I talk when I get back to Tallahassee in choir practice and just let everybody know like God is real? <laughs> and he says, uh, Tell me more about that. And I was like, well, you know, all the language we use for God is really too confining. God is bigger than our imagination. And I'm not sure God has consciousness or agency or will or anything, (laughs) but there is an immense radiation that somehow we can access uh, when we reach out. It may reach back. It may be an inanimate quality of reality, but either way, God is real. (laughs) And my friend Jeb was like, let's talk when you get back. So then I get back, and he convinces me maybe my ideas aren't formed enough to talk to the choir yet. (laughs) So instead, I started blogging, which is what you do. So without telling anybody I'd had this faith transition, I wrote a blog called It's Not About Chicken on Chick-fil-A Day, where I said it's not a sin for two people to be in love. They're the same gender. And in fact, gender's kind of a construct we made up. And I taught youth Sunday school. The calls came in quickly. Hey, are you okay? I'm great. Can we talk about what your your blog is about? Oh, well, you know, I've just kind of grown on this issue and I've realized we're wrong. (laughs) Well, that's not what we teach here. Um, So, can I take you through why you're wrong? Sure. I'm wrong. Okay, or is it settled? No. Okay, can you step down as a deacon? Now, this wasn't church leadership. This was just another church member. And uh, while that was going on, I got really wound up about evolution and Genesis. So I wrote a Facebook rant about uh, why six-day creationism is very, very wrong and dangerous and destroying the church. And then, like, staff members of the church started commenting and fighting with me in front of the congregation on Facebook And then it became like this strategic thing in my church where I would sit down and then like the pro Mike McCarr group would sit around me like a shield, even if they agreed with me or not, right? They're like, you don't understand. Oh, then I wrote a blog post. Oh yeah, I was an atheist for a while, but I'm not anymore. Like I did that after the other stuff. And every time I walked in the building, I was like a cyclone in the Pacific, just loss of life and property in every direction. That led to the most painful experience of my life. After my parents got divorced, I went through a divorce with my church. Now, <laughs> let me be very clear about this Southern Baptist Church in Tallahassee. These were the people who were at my wedding, these were the people who with tears in their eyes watched my daughter come out of the baptismal waters. These were the people who were there in the hospital when a family member got sick. These were the people who picked up my broken pieces after my dad's announcement that the marriage was over. This was my family. And I tried to make it work because I loved them. I tried for two Process. I hurt myself, and I hurt them. Let's be honest. If you are a materialist, empiricist mystic who denies a literal interpretation of the Old Testament and accepts same-sex marriage, there is no value under which you are Southern Baptist. (laughs) The ship has sailed. And we get to a point where the act of us Being our true selves hurts other people. I'm convinced I should have come back from California. I should have told people I loved them. I should have left my church. My friend Rob says you cannot lead people where they don't want to go. For some people, if you convince them same-sex marriage is okay... They lose God. They are not ready. And here's the thing. We're going to reach this tipping point now where on these hot issues where we're making so much progress so fast, that last 20% is going to be really slow because they're going to create a a psychosocial fortress around those belief systems. At some point, the healthy thing is to get a divorce. At some point, the healthy thing is to grieve. So, what did I do? A couple of years of therapy—years, not weeks, not months, years—to I could get—I could get to the point where I could not be hurt or wish ill towards those people. And I, I mean, I had some—I had like a bunch of pastors take me to lunch after I left the church and tell me like I had to shut my website down in the name of Jesus, like like and like some cyber stalking and you have to have people in your life. Your friends are the people who love you as you are no matter what. Those are your friends. People can't do that. They're not your friends. They're acquaintances. And when people can't accept you as you are, the only healthy thing to do, you don't have to break the connection but you set boundaries. We don't have these conversations. I know where you are, I, you know where I am. If we can't agree to disagree, you just don't call, you don't text, and you let it fade. Now, that sounds really harsh, but I'm convinced it's the only way to be emotionally healthy. You have to let go and you have to grieve, and don't skip the grieving. I went from like, well, I'm not at that church anymore. We're doing brunch. It's awesome. <laughs> now I'm a Methodist, full steam ahead, right? And like, uh, the way your brain stores trauma, if you don't express that, it's wired in the synapses of your brain and it will show up at the most inopportune times. <laughs> in my case, my unexpressed trauma showed up in a meeting at my office. My boss said something I didn't agree with. I threw my stuff on the ground, said I quit and walked out. (laughs) SVP in an ad agency, in front of all the people. I'm out of here. It was not like that big a thing that I like. (laughs) But it was because something he said, as my brain turned it into a linguistic structure in my left temporal lobe, and it passed through my memories, It got too close to that circuit, and my brain went, Whoa, danger. That's why we have to grieve. That's why we have to take the space to emotionally recover because that's how human brains are built. Um, And it's tough and it's hard, and you bleed for a while, and you have a scar, and it's tender for a long time. But after a while, it's a cool story you tell on a podcast. Thank you. Um, Just as a side note before I get to my question, um, I listened to your, the Liturgist podcast recently about uh, racism, and as a person of color myself, I just want to thank you so much for the work that you've done uh, in educating. Uh, Before you continue, uh, Black and White is the title of the episode. Racism in America is the name of the series that continues in season three. So there's a really valid critique of that episode, Viewed in Isolation two white men discuss racism with two black men. That's because we're going to do a womanist episode, which talks about intersectionality. And then we're going to go through uh, the Latino and the alien story. We're going to go through the native story. We're going to go through the Asian story. And this is going to be a multiple episode series because we thought it was too big a topic to tackle at once. And because of the size of our audience, we're trying to take white people by the hand through white fragility. So it's baby steps. (laughs) So anyway, sorry. Thanks. But uh, for tonight, my name is Randall and I also drove down here from Seattle. And my question is, um, I can't remember which um, podcast he was on, whether it was your Ask Science Mike or whether it was The Liturgist or the Pete Holmes podcast. But I remember you said something about how consent is not an adequate sexual ethic for our time. So I guess my question is, What are your reservations about a sexual ethic based on consent? And to bring this back to the realm of science, is there a way that science can help the church develop a sexual ethic that is relevant for the world that we live in today? Okay, there are some children in the room. Uh, Parents, this might get real. Yeah, so the weirdest thing happened to me. I started doing these episodes of Ask Science Mike called Ask Science Mike After Dark where I answered questions that I thought would basically freak out my most conservative listeners. So I put a disclaimer at the beginning so they could tune out, and I said, basically, we're going to do nothing but sex and drugs questions. And those turned out to be my most popular episodes by far. <laughs> Which is really confusing for me. I'm a southern married. I've been married 15 years. Like, I'm not like the cutting-edge perspective on sexuality. <laughs> And I learned the reason those episodes are so popular is because there's nowhere in the church that it's safe to talk about sex. So I'm like the guy that says, yeah, you can ask me your question about polyamory. And then I don't go, oh, you're a terrible person for wondering, right? So I've realized that part of this is literally just creating the safety that the questions are okay. Now, here's what surprised me. I did an episode on pornography, Because, oh my gosh, do I get a lot of porn questions. Hundreds a month. And I basically said, here's my concerns with pornography. One, um, it appears to be neurologically maladaptive for some people, and reasonable science has shown that it's linked to erectile dysfunction in teens and 20-somethings today. And two, I'm not sure what the role consent plays. Because sometimes the line between consent and coercion and consent and a lack of socioeconomic opportunity, it's very blurry. And I got more pushback on that episode than I ever got, but it wasn't from conservatives. It was from progressives who said, hey, man, you are way too hard on porn. Really surprised me. I was like, okay, I'm learning about my audience. And then I said, okay, I know what I'll do. Several porn stars have emailed me after that episode I'll just ask them. So I I had phone calls with like eight porn performers, mostly female, a few male, and they told me horrific stories about the porn industry. Truly, well, they've agreed to something in a contract. On set, they say, "Here's the contract." Filming starts, and an act happens, and they, they they say, "Cut, cut!" And then they're told, "We're not going to pay you unless you do this." Not consent, right? None of them would go on record. No one will go on record because they're fearful of retribution in the industry. Which, by the way, I think I'm also the only Christian podcaster to have a interview the porn star on the show. So <laughs> I talked to a porn star, Rena Sky, who said, Yeah, I'll go on record. Sure. And she talked about her experience, which wasn't as graphic, but she did say nobody enters the porn industry on their best day. Now, porn's easy to pick on. But here's my point. When we talk about combining economics and sexuality things get blurry
2: well let's
1: let's like step away for a second i left my ad job to become science mike and depending on how far my excel spreadsheet says until my children can't eat anymore my consent on what cities i go to changes Right? So I've done a couple of churches that were not a fit, like really conservative places. I know it wasn't a fit. I tried to warn them, and I went, anyway, why? Because I like feeding my children stuff other than ramen noodles. <laughs> so I don't have this all worked out. Um, other than to say my concern with the traditional faith-based approach is it's misogynistic. It is hostile, to the very nature of human sexuality. It treats sex as like a dirty, ugly, nasty thing as opposed to the primary biological impetus for every organism that reproduces sexually. Um, It engenders a great deal of shame. Uh, It is hostile towards non-normative sexuality. And it has all these problems. I have less of a problem with the current progressive, secular view except say sex doesn't exist. So if we're trying to empower people to use consent, we should never use that word. I'm fine with safe-er sex. The fact is, when two people have sex, when they copulate, by design, customs and border patrol on both sides has to relax a little bit, right? Because the whole thing is, the way your immune system works is looking for molecular markers for foreign invaders. And in order for someone else's DNA to make the transition, they have to have like, a, uh, like an express lane, like a treaty between two nations. And the problem is bad guys sneak in through that process. And that's not just through fluid contact. That's from skin-to-skin contact. Uh, so there's that. And this has serious implications. Although we have a, a vaccine, it's not widely used for HPV. HPV is skin-to-skin transferred, and in women, men it results in almost nothing usually, but for women it results in infertility, uterine scarring, and cervical cancer. So I don't want my kids to hear, put on a condom, you're cool. It's not true. Uh, We need a more informed ethic that includes the biological realities of sex, and when it comes to sex and economics, we can't view these issues in a vacuum. Economic sex is tied to poverty, is tied to marginalization, is tied to oppression, and we can't, I, I get concerned when the progressive stance or the secular stance takes an overly idealized, almost libertarian view of society where humans are these frictionless economic spheres. It's not true. So I never want to see sexuality uh, perpetuated as a tool to break and oppress and scar people. Uh, what's the way forward? More information, here's, you give me a societal ill and I have two answers every time I go to first. Education and economic empowerment, primarily for women. Tell me a problem in America that doesn't help. Right? So I think the way forward, what's the blending of science and faith in a sexual ethic? It doesn't treat sex as a completely separate category of human behavior but a holistic part of life, which means you can't address sexuality without addressing poverty, without addressing equality, uh, without addressing incarceration, the list goes on. Probably the least satisfying answer in the history of the program, but uh, it's an unsolved human issue.
4: Hi, I'm Destiny. I'm from Portland. And um, I wanted to know your thoughts on the collective human consciousness and how that affects our views on morality. And I know um, Richard Richard Dawkins has this idea of like the selfish gene and that your morality is based on like your own evolutionary instinct, like a mother comforts her sick child because she's biologically wired to protect her legacy. And sort of how our evolution, um, reconciles with our own progressing and the ideas of the human moral based on collective consciousness.
1: All right. I thought you were going to give me some, uh, Ray Kurzweil singularity theory for a second, but another left turn in modern Western philosophy. This is like the nerdiest show we've ever done, by the way, <laughs> go Portland. Uh, We had this thing in Western thought called the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment started to shift thinking towards the action of the individual, which had some real value, has some real value. And then we sort of like crystallized that in uh, modernism, which is like super individualistic. And then some would argue that postmodernism is like so individualistic, it's collective. And, um, <laughs> but the idea is that you are this uh, rational actor that makes decisions, and that's what people are. And the way you do anything is you convince people through, like, a rational argument that this behavior is advantageous or this one is not. Um, and I uh, just spent some time in the Middle East. And I noticed that, like, uh, Christians and Jews and Muslims over there don't have any individual sense of faith. It's a collective identity. Completely different lens uh, for thinking and evaluating. In some ways, that might be a higher fidelity view of humanity. As much as the Enlightenment kind of helped us understand a particular brain function related to cognition, a lot of our behaviors are emergent, from the interaction between our genes and the environment. For example, I am fat. I get fat easily. I actually really enjoy getting fat. Um, It turns out that there is this gene expression, it seems, for fatness, and that in any population, You have some people that naturally, as soon as calories are available, will just eat and eat and eat and eat. And you have some people who naturally are like, no, I'm good. And here's a funny thing happens. You would say this is unhealthy and should be weeded out by natural selection, except for most of human history, sometimes calories go away for a long time. So even though when calories are plentiful, the skinny guys are more effective warriors and gatherers and whatever, When things get thin, famine-wise, us chunky folk can literally last longer and work longer because I don't know what, I'm 30 pounds overweight, 30 times 3,500 calories. That's like a lot of days of food right here. (laughs) But we recently have this obesity boom. This is where I'm going. And this obesity boom is not related necessarily just to my individual decisions. Though they play a part, my individual decisions are affected by macro systems in the environment. Interestingly enough, we found that uh, lab animals who get controlled amounts of calories are increasing in obesity rates as the general population of humans so uh, the composition of our food is changing. We have a lot of plastic that's degrading and intermixing with our biology in ways we don't entirely understand. And by, I hope that disclaimer we don't entirely understand will keep you from saying I'm espousing pseudoscience. My point is, this collective consciousness, this response to the environment drives our behaviors more than we think. This is actually one of the main reasons... I am not generically religious, but am a Christian. Did you see that coming? There's this terrible, beautiful thing, and we are wired to watch out for our kids and our tribe first. It's great, it's beautiful when a mom defends her child from a bear or whatever. But it's less beautiful when societies wage war or uh, economic injustice to make sure their kids are better off than those kids, which is a completely natural thing. So what fascinates me about Christianity memetically, it used to be that belonging to a tribe was based entirely on birth identity or blood, and that's how you decided who was in your group and who wasn't. And then you had this move ladder in human civilization towards belonging that was based on identity. So you have the emergence of uh, nation states, that even though we're not blood-related, we're all this group. And the people I consider in my tribe who all work for their well-being grew. And then we switched it even further, and we had systems of which Christianity was one of the first where identity was based on belief. So we may have been enemies very recently, but if you convert to Christianity, I now work for your flourishing. Sometimes it's quite beautiful, and other times it's the Crusades. (laughs) And now we're reaching a point where we're seeing more and more, for example, in the Science Mike audience, that the, the sense of belonging is not belief but behavior. What do you do? So if you're a Christian that's same-sex affirming and works to relieve poverty, and you're an atheist who does the same, we can hang. I actually feel more in common with you than the other people who profess to be Christians. But I think at its healthiest, belief in the teachings of Jesus is an invitation to consider all of humanity your tribe. And that is certainly the case for me. That is absolutely the case for me. So I go to the Middle East, and I look at the Israel-Palestine situation, and I say, who here is my brother? Who here is my sister? Yes, it's the Palestinian, it's the Israeli. It's the Christian, it's the Jew, and the Muslim. These are my brothers, and who's flourishing am I for? All of them. So that's what gets me excited about the way I think the gospel is moving, which, by the way, what we call the gospel has a documented historical shift. Can we all just admit that? And I think the way the gospel is being drawn now is an invitation to a universal acceptance of humanity, I would dare call Christian humanism. Um, yeah, thank you. Got a couple, five Christian humanists in the house, my people. And, uh, I think this collective identity, this gene, we just have to learn to hack humans. So we have a need for certainty. I'm certain about uncertainty. I'm certain that I don't know everything. And okay, if I have to have a tribe, if my genes say I need a tribe, my tribe is everybody.
2: Hi, my name is Matthew. Uh, I did a study evolutionary biology in college. Um, Are you about to take me
1: to school? Is that what's gonna happen?
2: Just to contextualize your answer, uh, I would say common descent and evolution by natural selection and random genetic mutation are probably the best explanations for the origin of species. Uh, Natural selection is an intensely competitive, brutal, and cruel process. Um, And that's fine. Uh, (laughs) However, it seems to me that Jesus is predictably selected for the weakest, poorest, the unfit. Yeah. uh, Does Jesus use natural selection as his mechanism for creation? And if he has, how can he do that?
1: That was an amazing question. Uh, I wish I could say this is unrehearsed. I think I've done this question on the show really early on. There's this tension between this God revealed in Jesus who says, you want, to first, you want to bring the kingdom of God near? Love your neighbor. Who's my neighbor? Those Samaritans you hate. The poor, the orphan, the widow, and the alien. I don't know why Republicans always leave that last one off. Um, and and I, I, I don't want to get too tribal. There are Republicans that listen to the show. So... Love them. Um, so you have this tension between natural selection, which seems so brutal, and the words of Jesus. Now, I want to be very clear about something. People, this is, I hate males coming from this question. I'm cool with it. I don't think Jesus knew anything about natural selection. I don't think he was like, well, one day, Charles Darwin. My Christology, my understanding of Jesus is that Jesus was uh, fully human and limited in knowledge, although I accept incarnation, that, that, that the Christ that's part of the Trinity, gosh, we're getting so theological inside baseball, that the Christ that was part of the Trinity was indwelled within Jesus, and Jesus was God. That is by far the least scientific belief that I hold, and I'm always very clear that I hold that as a belief and not a fact claim, Right, so somebody's like, hey, how can you justify with evidence? I can't, which is why like when people go, I think you're pretty nutty for believing that. I go, cool, that's really reasonable. Um, <laughs> so you, ha- you have this tension. Here's the thing. I don't think an oak tree knows that when it spreads its branches, there's a grass genocide below. Still does it. I don't think a tiger has enough capacity in its orbitofrontal cortex to empathize with the suffering of an antelope. And if it did, what a head trip. Tigers aren't omnivores. (laughs) I mean, if you feed them anything other than animal protein, they get really sick really fast. They're the purest carnivores on the planet. In this natural order, this evolutionary system, everybody's trying to get their share of the photons. It's just the way it is. The sun is uh, chaotically dying, giving us free energy in the process for eight to 10 billion years, it's a good scene. And the only way we can get that energy on the earth is to steal it from something else. That's it, no other way to get the energy to run a metabolism on this planet otherwise. And there is this one poor species who understands it. This one species who not only models consciousness in a series of loops in the brain, but models its own loops. I mean, I think that's kind of where consciousness comes from. We're aware of our own model of reality, which is like a terrible existential head trip. And... That creates unique considerations for this species. Because we're so knowledgeable about how we manipulate the world, we can do it on purpose. We can, like, build drills and exhume algae that decomposed hundreds of millions of years ago and just burn it and throw the carbon in the atmosphere. Chimps are clever. They can't. Dolphins are brilliant. They can't. We seem almost uniquely suited to understand the suffering we can produce. And I think when the scripture, when Genesis speaks of made in the image of God, it is talking about the ability to, to create or destroy with intention, which calls us into a unique responsibility as the children of God, which calls us into a unique capacity to, with intention, care for creation, including and maybe even especially each other. That what the message of Jesus does is invite humanity from its basis instincts that arise in the limbic system and the basal ganglia and the rat brain and invite Jesus invites us into neocortical thinking. That's what the gospel is about. Can we use our rational capacity, our compassion, and our empathy to live lives that create peace on earth. The Old Testament and the New Testament are obsessed with that word shalom, God's peace over and over, God's peace over and over. And I think that's why we're invited to co-create the world. Now, we have to be very clear for a second. I'm a mystic. So I experience a God that I talk about wants us to or directs us to or invites us to But I also understand through science, you can make a much better case for a God that is uh, like a singularity or the Higgs field, which doesn't know anything. And even what I understand from physics, based on how time works, relativity seems to make a pretty convincing argument that the past, the future, and the present all exist, all space-time coordinates are there at all times, and that in a singularity, Uh, There is no then, now, later. There's no true classical physics or causality. And anything that can embody or possess or be a part of a state like that, you throw words like being, consciousness, will, agency, you're anthropomorphizing a mystery. So what I do, the way my faith works, is I don't resolve that tension. If I do, the whole house of cards comes down. I allow an acknowledgement, an understanding of the mystery of our origins and what keeps us going now, while embracing that a personalized divine experience and the teachings of Christ can help me create shalom. Another thoroughly unsatisfying answer. Hey, my name's
3: Kenny. Um, I thought you were going to address this earlier with free will but you didn't quite get to it because he well, took the left turn so I get to not ask my, my question uh, so mine is coming at free will from somewhat biblical perspective is there any signs to support Romans 7.15 what I am doing I do not understand for I am not practicing what I would like to do but I am doing
1: the very things I hate yeah absolutely absolutely Science is all over that. Here's why. Your consciousness presents itself as an observer, where you're like uh, some detached thing that looks through your eyes and controls your hands and has these thoughts and feelings. And that's an illusion. I'm going to go to my favorite example. Sorry, frequent listeners. I'm lactose intolerant pre-diabetic, and 30 pounds overweight. Eating pizza puts me in severe pain and shortens my life. And if someone put Domino's right here, (laughs) right now, I'm all over it. (laughs) And I can hold a piece of pizza and go, is this minutes? or weeks (laughs) that you don't spend with your grandchildren? (laughs) You know what I mean? I do what I hate. Or I'll go, you know, what I really need to do, I spend no time with a family and cut back on the travel schedule. And the phone rings, my booking agent goes, hey, they'd like you to come to Tulsa, Oklahoma next week. I go, yeah, let's do it. And then I love it, but then I also, there's this conflicted thing. Why does that happen? Because you aren't a you. You are 37 trillion human cells and over 100 trillion bacteria wrapped in a thin layer of epidermis and 5 million hair follicles. You're a colony organism, and the bacteria in your gut affect the way you think and feel. Why? because there are more neurons in your GI tract than any other part of your body but your brain. Did you know that? Your gut thinks and bacteria get a vote. Now your consciousness comes from 86 billion neurons in your brain that compose hundreds of structures with directly competing priorities and they have an ongoing debate more severe than any Congress or Parliament about how you're going to think and feel and act in any moment. And when a vote is called and someone wins, the dissenting people pout. Right? And this is why you know you're not saving for retirement, but you're going to start right after you pay off the car you can't afford. (laughs) Because of this tug of war, Paul tapped into a modern scientific truth. We are deeply conflicted organisms. We are deeply conflicted organisms. And that's why grace is so important. We are literally at war with ourselves. It's by design. It's by design. Because sometimes the way you think things are going to go is wrong. So you have, you've been shaped as a species, over millions of years, we have trouble arising at decisions to deal with the incredible uncertainty of this life. So, we do what we hate. And I'll give you the most poignant example I can think of. I was at the Holocaust Museum in Israel. And our tour guide took us through And with great empathy, she spoke of the German death squads. Jewish tour guides, speaking of empathy, why? Because when they went through the records, guess what happened? You had the Blitzkrieg go through. And following the Blitzkrieg were the death squads. And the death squads, they had to requisition more and more and more alcohol to keep them going even though they'd been indoctrinated as Hitler youth, looking in the eyes of people as they killed them took a toll, but they did what they hated. So there was this emergency meeting in Berlin. Bullets are expensive and our troop morale is falling. So if we build gas chambers, we'll preserve troop morale and save money because we can create distance between executioner And the execution, one person loads the gas, one person ushers the people in, another person presses a button without ever seeing anyone, and you create distance. So on the one hand, our capacity for consciousness is beautiful and moving and incredible. And on the other hand, I'm sorry, there is a merit to this ancient Christian idea of sin. There is merit to the idea that we need help against our darkest instincts, and I just see real evidence of it every day. Ah, That might be one of like three instances where me and Paul agree.
2: Yeah, my name's Dave from Portland, um, and this, based on your last answer, changes a little bit of what I'm going to ask, but um, this is about free will, but also tying in uh, sexual, sexual ethics. Uh, I noticed people make some of their poorest choices during sexual arousal. And I was wondering, and, and now it seems almost obvious, evolutionarily, that conflict gets eliminated in order for reproduction to be aided. But I'm wondering, is there any sort of way that you know of to make better, more rational decisions while still lacking some of our mental faculties?
1: Ooh, really great question. Especially, oh, look out, Mike the Feminist is walking on stage in a rape culture. That's uh, like the most, one of the most important questions we can ask ourselves today. Guess what? Neurologically, your beliefs shape your behavior. We have a narrative today in society almost universally held. Men have overwhelming, uncontrollable sex drives that once they are aroused, they are unable to control their decisions, and smart women cover up as much as possible to keep the beast from coming out. (laughs) Meanwhile, women have much weaker sex drives. They practically have to be begged for sex. They, they mainly have sex to have kids because they love babies, <laughs> and to keep their partner around, but most of the time, they're bored or unsatisfied. Let's look at history. And in the Victorian era, it was totally understood that men were almost completely disinterested in sex, uh, that it was a thing you did because you needed children, kind of gross and messy. Meanwhile, women were uncontrollable sexual beasts who had to be kept under control all the time, or they would fall into their wild instincts and just copulate with everyone. (laughs) This is in the West in recent history, and I bring this story up for a reason. Our beliefs affect our behavior. When men believe they cannot control their sex drives, guess what happens? They can't. So to everyone in this room who is male, and to everyone who is listening who is male, congratulations. You are in complete and total control of a human sex drive. And at every point from initial attraction until... The moment things start and even during, you are in complete control of your cognition and you can stop anytime. If you don't believe me, tell yourself over and over. Because guess what the science reveals? You know who really likes sex? Human beings. <laughs> Human beings love sex. Now, we're not chimpanzees. Those guys are kinky, but... <laughs> Gorillas, another near relative, I mean, they get it done. Um, But we're kind of in the middle. And when we find with measurements and tests, uh, like who responds most to visual imagery, actually women. Women respond more universally to visual imagery than men. And women will report in studies that they don't experience a state of arousal, even as measurement equipment indicates that they do. The societally enforced cognitive divide is that deep. So I believe strongly that our modern tale about binary gender duality and sexual preference does harm to men and women, not only in engendering and creating a rape culture, but also destroying healthy sexual flourishing among couples. This is why I talk so much about shame. This is why I'm so open to having conversations about sex. Now, so that step one, we can make better choices by understanding we can make better choices. Two, let's also admit that as you enter a state of arousal, your gonads' vote in the brain gets more and more. Like they take over the House and the Senate and the executive office And the post office. (laughs) Uh, But at at any point, your prefrontal cortex still has veto power. Still has veto power. Now, how do you... Well, if you're making, like, uh, destructive sexual decisions, male or female, you have a sexual addiction, this is less true for you. That's neurologically driven. You need professional health and counseling. If you are really lonely... You make different sex. We have like a huge um, sexual compulsion problem in our society about uh, both partnered sex and pornography consumption. You know, one of the reasons—and this is nuts—touch aversion in the West is a huge problem, and it it actually drives him into all situations. We we don't touch each other very often. We're weird about it, and because we're so weird about it, when we do touch each other, we're kind of creepy about it. You know what I mean? Like, we're so desperate for contact. It's like, I just want to give you a hug. Mmm, that's nice. <laughs> that's real nice. Your hair smells real I'm sorry. Whoa. <laughs> Pleasure doing business with you. <laughs> like, we just got to relax as a culture. Um, and the, the kind of loneliness and isolation we feel is not healthy. Uh, and this applies to me. Because it's not a simple narrative. It will probably happen tonight. I go city to city to city, and there's this incredible thing where, after I talk, a multi hour line of people waits to talk to me, and 50% of them cry because something I've done just by being honest with my life has meant something to them. And they start crying. And I'm a hugger, and I want to hug them so bad. But then I don't want to be like, hey, I don't want him to think I was like, come to my hotel afterwards, right? <laughs> it's like, no, I just feel a need for him. But and then I also know some people are touch averse for good reason. They've been abused or traumatized. And so what almost universally happens is the person is like sobbing and then goes, can we just, I was like, yes, of course. <laughs> um, and that's how like weird and detached we are about physical contact in our society, which also drives that whole narrative. Um, Boy, I've been really down on the west lately. I mean, we we did the internet; it's good. Uh, But the 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 core of the idea is by believing you can make better choices, that takes you the furthest down the road to making better choices. You are not a slave to your sexuality, and your sexuality is not evil or wicked or sinful. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. I can't wait to see you next week. I do want to remind you of a couple things. One, if you'd like to see me in your town, go to AskScienceMike.com and click the events tab. There's a lot of stuff coming up. Uh, Definitely would love to see you this fall in either Denver or Chicago for the Liturgist Gathering. It'll be me and Michael Gunger and Lisa Gunger and you hanging out, talking about uh, doubt and faith and science and certainty. And also there will be the Gungers playing music. If you're into that, it's cool. I want to thank Greg Nordine for producing the program, Andrew Golucci for his pre-production work, and as always, my BFF Jeb Bottaford for the groovy theme song. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I'll see you next week.